You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 20th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, as Israel gives a date for the start of a ground offensive in Rafa, we'll get the latest from Tel Aviv. Then we'll be looking at Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov as he tours Latin America, attempting to shore up support for the Kremlin. Plus... Defence industry is an area where we punch above our weight. There's no other country of 10 million who can design fighter aircraft and submarines, for example, and that's something we can bring to the table. We caught up with the Swedish Defence Minister at the Munich Security Conference. We'll examine the importance of the Bab al-Mandab Strait in the Red Sea and how the EU plans to protect this vital shipping route. We'll flick through the paper have a roundup of fashion news, and then... The play is kind of like a lecture performance. It's somewhere between a journalist view on Benko and, I would say, stand-up comedy. We'll hear how Austria's biggest bankruptcy scandal is being brought to the stage. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The United States has proposed a rival draft United Nations Security Council resolution calling for a temporary ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war and opposing a major ground offensive by its ally Israel in Rafah. Iran continues to enrich uranium well beyond the needs for commercial nuclear use, despite UN pressure to stop it, so says the IAEA chief. And Singapore kicked off Asia's biggest air show today, the first in six years unaffected by pandemic restrictions, as the global aviation industry grapples with a rebound in travel demand in the face of severe supply constraints. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, Benny Gantz, a member of Israel's war cabinet, says that Hamas must release the hostages held in Gaza by the beginning of Ramadan on March the 10th, or the fighting will continue everywhere to include the Rafah area. Rafah, which sits on the Gaza-Egypt border, is the last remaining Hamas stronghold, but it's also where over a million displaced Palestinians have fled to seek shelter from fighting elsewhere. Well, I'm joined now by Alison Kaplan-Sommer in Tel Aviv, a journalist for Haaretz. Uh, Alison, many thanks for coming on the programme. We value your opinion. There's been much speculation about the timing of a ground offensive in Rafah. What more do we know about this deadline? Is it realistic, given the amount of people sheltering there? Um, well, it, there's not a lot of talk inside Israel about the timing of the Rafah offensive. It's more of a international story. Right now, the fighting is focused more on the um, on the refugee camps in uh, in uh, central uh, Gaza, and that's where the focus is. Um, I mean, there's the deadline of Ramadan. There's been a lot of threats that it's going to be a very um, a fiery time in order to um, in order to uh, uh, have an Israeli assault happening 
on Rafah during Ramadan. So we're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. You want to allow sufficient time and ability of um, of people to uh, to get out of Rafah. And there's all kinds of plans about tent cities and, and, and getting them out, although it just seems almost impossible to do a full-on assault on uh, Rafah without many civilian casualties. Um, so there's the consideration of um, waiting long enough, and then there's the consideration of coming up against the uh, deadline of, uh, of Ramadan. But a report from today um, suggests that maybe uh, it could affect that uh, that timing, and that is reports that um, the the head of Hamas in uh, Gaza, uh, Sinwar, has fled um, to Egypt through uh, through the tunnels. And there's also some suggestions that maybe he took some Israeli hostages with him. So the question is, what would happen uh, without Sinwar? Um, is there a chance that there would be a greater chance for a softening or uh, or greater surrender, or maybe a, a need for a less all-out assault on Gaza? So that's yet to be seen. Those reports are very fresh. Mm. So now, despite the US saying it will veto a draft UN resolution from Algeria demanding an immediate ceasefire, can Israel still count on the support of the Biden administration? In our headlines, we heard of this alternative resolution uh, that's for a temporary ceasefire and, and no assault on Rafa. Uh, how significant is that? Does, does it signal a, a sea change in international backing? Um, perhaps, but I don't see the United States, you know, obviously um, uh, uh, siding um, against Israel on this. You know, the, the worst that could possibly happen as far as Israel's concerned, I guess, would be to uh, to abstain from voting. But the Israeli um, military has been working in such close cooperation uh, with the United States that I would imagine that anything that it does in Rafah would have to have some sort of, if not in front of the scenes, behind the scenes uh, sign-on uh, from the Americans. So I don't see uh, uh, that kind of uh, that kind of sea change happening. I don't see right now um, uh, Biden has been offering Israel a lot more carrots than sticks when it comes to its uh, the nature of the way it's waging war in uh, in in Gaza. So I would be uh, very skeptical if uh, if the U.S. There's a chance that the U.S. would would take a, a hard line against Israel in this um, in in these UN debates and and that's what matters really to the Israelis is uh, is what happens on the ground, not necessarily these uh, the international resolutions in the in the UN right now. Mm. So we know there've been protests in Tel Aviv calling for fresh elections. How is Netanyahu perceived at home now? Well, from the beginning of the war, there's been a very high degree of blame of Netanyahu for um, allowing what happened to happen and to play out on October 7th. There's huge billboards all over the um, all over the highways in Israel saying, um, uh, Netanyahu, you are you are in charge. Um, you are guilty. So there's always been that uh, that great sense. And there's always been a sense that we are stuck with Netanyahu prosecuting the war because you can't have an election campaign in the middle of uh, in the middle of uh, of defending the country. So there's always been, and, and the polls have borne out great unpopularity individually of, uh, of Netanyahu during this war. So this isn't, uh, so this isn't something new, but, you know, practical in real politics, he still has his majority in Knesset. There is no uh, official election date that's supposed to take place until November uh, uh, 2026. So unless something could be done to either break his hold on the coalition, which we don't see any signs of, he's got this right-wing religious coalition locked up, um, or for the his individual uh, Likud party to overturn his leadership, which again, he's got a very firm control of the party. Um, on the ground, practically, even though there's huge public sentiment and he's very unpopular, there's no sign that uh, that anything is going to be done about changing uh, the leadership of Israel. And let me just point out, you know, the fact that people don't like him personally and hold him responsible personally doesn't mean that Israel is 
um, necessarily opposed to the way the war is being waged, which, as we know, the opposition is in the war cabinet. So opposing Netanyahu does not necessarily equal um, uh, opposing um, uh you know, prosecuting this war uh, full uh, full steam ahead. The only thing that's uh, that's being questioned is the balance of the consideration of uh, freeing hostages versus uh, defeating uh, Hamas. But all of Israel is behind those two goals. So Netanyahu has called on Qatar to pressure Hamas to release the hostages. But Qatar's foreign ministry said his remarks are a new attempt to stall and prolong the war for reasons that have become obvious to everyone. What does this timeline for an invasion mean for the mediator? I mean, it must put a lot of pressure on them. No, it absolutely does. And there's a question of, you know, whether... Israel is Israel and Netanyahu are, are they really itching to do uh, this assault on Rafah short term? I mean, I think they're hoping that perhaps the threat of it will pressure um, uh, a way forward in the hostage deal because the uh, the offers that have come from Hamas in order to you know get what people say they want, which is uh, ceasefire and uh, and release of the hostages and a grand deal, their offers have been non-starters with kind of everything but the kitchen sink thrown in. Not only you know thousands of uh, of hardcore terrorists being freed from Israeli prisons, but, um, you know, a complete withdrawal from uh, from uh, Gaza, you know, basically trying to turn the clock back to uh, to October 6th and all kinds of um, uh, conditions involving the the Temple Mount, things that are that have nothing to do directly with uh, with the war. So with their non-starter um, uh, offers, at least uh, publicly, perhaps, you know, the 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 sword of a, an assault on Rafah, they're hoping um will will do something that maybe will prevent it actually um, uh, having to happen. But there's a definite commitment to rooting out the military capabilities of Hamas in Gaza. That is something that Israel is not going to back down on. If there's an opportunity to stop that assault temporarily in order to get hostages free, um, that is something that the Israeli public is interested in. What uh, was hinted in in that statement is obviously maybe it's not in uh, Netanyahu's political reckoning. I don't see uh, Israel backing down unless there is some sort of serious offer via Qatar, via Egypt, whoever, um, to get the hostages out in return for a temporary ceasefire. And at this point, there's really not been a lot of movement on those talks. No, absolutely not. And, um, you know, it, a lot of it has been, um, uh, is, is Hamas uh, uh, digging in its heels, you know, uh, unbelievably showing um, amazing um, uh, lack of concern for the uh, for the uh, condition of its civilians, because that military infrastructure that Israel is determined to root out is located right now in Rafah, underground, underneath um, uh, you know tens of thousands of uh, of innocent uh, innocent civilians. Now you mentioned the sensitivity around Ramadan, and we know that since the seventh of October Hamas attack on Israel, access to the Al Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem has been restricted on Fridays. Mm-hmm. Now Netanyahu's office has confirmed restrictions as to who can worship there will continue when the Muslim holy month of Ramadan begins. Hamas has described the move as religious warfare. Do you think this could further exacerbate the situation and and bring violence to Jerusalem? I mean, absolutely. Our national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, has a history before he went into, um, you know, parliamentary politics of 
uh, you know, focusing exactly on this issue, on the Jewish right to the uh, to the Temple Mount. And he has now proposed um, to impose age restrictions on Arab Israelis who want to pray at the uh, at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. These Arab Israelis are citizens of Israel. Um, so that limiting the religious rights of citizens of Israel to go pray um, on their holiest uh, month uh, at the Temple Mount. So that is really a very um, in- incendiary proposal. And um, Israel's attorney general has cautioned against it. And there's a great internal debate about it right now. So, you know, not only is it um, uh, being cautioned for setting the wider Arab world on, on fire, but there's a civil rights debate um, inside Israel as to uh, whether that happens. I mean, Israel is, you know, always heavily restricted the access of Palestinians living in the West Bank to pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But these limitations, which would also um, apply to uh, to Israeli Arab citizens, are extremely controversial and uh, and highly uh, incendiary. And if you remember, it's um, it was uh, a former late Prime Minister Ariel Sharon's decision um, to uh, to go to the Temple Mount, which uh, set off the Second Intifada. So um, so this is very inflammatory stuff, and it's very dangerous. Alison, thank you very much indeed. That's Alison Kaplan Summer there in Tel Aviv, and this is the Globalist. It is 2.13 in Havana, 7.13 here in London. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, is on a trip to Latin America. He began in Cuba yesterday and will visit Venezuela and Brazil, where he'll join a meeting of G20 foreign ministers. Well, I'm joined here by Oscar Guardiola Rivera, Professor in International Law and International Affairs at Birkbeck College. Oscar, many thanks for coming into the studio. Uh, This is Lavrov's ninth visit to Cuba as foreign minister. What was on the agenda there? Well, what's in, uh, in the agenda for uh, Lavrov is the continuation of uh, uh, the uh, building of links between uh, countries that uh, Russia sees in Latin America as uh, potential supporters, or at least countries which uh, can help uh, uh, boosting its uh, uh, image as a uh, global uh, actor. Uh, as you said, Georgina, the uh, actual uh, objective of this particular trip is uh, Lavrov's attendance to the G20 meeting in uh, Brazil. But in the meantime, these uh, two stops uh, are important, particularly because the context has uh, changed since uh, his last visit. Uh, The uh, situation in uh, Israel-Palestine has exacerbated the the view among many in uh, not only Latin America, but the rest of the global south, that uh, there are double standards in international relations and Russia is clearly trying to uh, benefit from that uh, perception. Mm. So the Russian state-controlled media suggested that America will shudder at the thought of another missile crisis, a repeater of the events of October 1962, when the Cold War between the US and the then Soviet Union came closest to an all-out war when American deployments of nuclear missiles in Italy and Turkey were matched by Soviet deployments of nuclear missiles in Cuba. Pravda says, that's a word I never thought, a phrase I'd never use, but Pravda says this would be a symmetrical response to the expansion of NATO at the very Russian borders. How likely is this scenario that we're going straight back to a missile crisis? 
or hyperbole has uh, seemingly become uh, uh, the uh, uh, trope of choice uh, in uh, news uh, these days. We're nowhere uh, uh, close to what happened in 1962. Uh, but it is the case that uh, uh, countries uh, are changing their views and directions, uh, particularly in, in the relationship with uh, the United States. Having said that, uh, the uh, relation between uh, you know central leftist countries such as uh, Colombia and the United States are good. So uh, uh, there is an, an even in the case of uh, Venezuela, uh, where relations are Uh, absolutely problematic. Uh, there are uh, recent agreements uh, between, uh, uh, you know, in this case, Venezuela and the United States. Uh, now, the reimposition of sanctions uh, uh, on Venezuela is perhaps the one thing fueling uh, this visit. In a sense, Venezuela is gesturing to Washington uh, to say, "Look, if you if you do this, we we go back together with your." With your nemesis, uh, that is uh, the kind of uh, diplomatic gesturing. But uh, one should take uh, uh, this kind of language with uh, caution. It's, mm. uh, it's hyperbolic. Mm. So, I mean, the one thing that, that unites Venezuela, Cuba and Russia is, of course, US sanctions. Cuba's hugely economic, de economically dependent on Russia. I mean, uh, how does that relationship work? It's, it's uh, very much the junior partner. Very much the junior partner. In fact, uh, uh, to be truthful, uh, even if one is uh, uh, sympathetic uh, uh, to the situation of uh, Cubans, uh, it does not work. It's uh, not nearly enough to uh, shore up the tremendous difficulties that the Cuban economy is going through. Uh, and uh, uh, the situation is uh, just worsening. Now, the problem is that uh, both the situation in Cuba and Venezuela, which would potentially worsen if uh, sanctions against oil are uh, are reimposed, sanctions against gold, uh, the sales of gold have already been reimposed. Well, that has become a boomerang. So uh, the United States is also facing a dilemma. Uh, in the case of Venezuela, close to 7.7 million Venezuelans have already migrated, uh, most of them to the United States because of the worsening of the economic situation. So reimposing sanctions uh, would be uh, uh, to the detriment of uh, the democratic uh, administration's own uh, agenda. Uh, at the same time, uh, the need for free elections uh, in Venezuela is very clear. So the dilemma is there. We need a, a lifting of uh, economic sanctions and uh, free elections in Venezuela if the situation is going to uh, become better for both the United States and uh, the countries uh, south of the border. Mm, free elections, but Nicolas Maduro has recently been cracking down on human rights and on his political opposition. What's behind this and what happened? Why did he expel UNHCR staff? Uh, that, that is very true and Maduro has come under heavy criticism uh, even among uh, uh, you know, leftist leaders in Latin America such as uh, Pepe Mujica from uh, Uruguay. Uh, this is the first time we hear Mujica saying look, Venezuela is uh, uh, you know, facing an authoritarian uh, government and that kind of language uh, coupled with a, a Uh, recent, you know, a, an encounter that is going to take place in a few days between uh, Lula da Silva from Brazil and Gustavo Petro from Colombia uh, indicates that uh, more pressure will more pressure will be uh, put under the uh, on the uh, Maduro administration to uh, stop uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, you know uh, reorient the elections in in its favor. Of course, the reason behind this is that uh, every single poll in Venezuela tells us that uh, 
people no longer are no longer ready to uh, support uh, the Maduro administration. Uh, Maria Corina Machado might not be uh, uh, the candidate uh, that uh, you know progressive thinking uh, leaders in Latin America might want to see in power. But free elections are necessary, and that is not what we uh, what what is uh, in the in the cards uh, right now. Mm. How would you uh, uh, characterize the relationship between Caracas and Moscow? How allied are they? Uh, well, again, this is a, this is a mutual a relationship of mutual uh, uh, benefits. Uh, Maduro can uh, uh, sort of you know, Maduro, who is already on on uh, the electoral uh, uh, on electoral campaign, can uh, gesture to uh, uh, potential voters by saying look we're still uh, we still have alternatives we can still uh, play a role uh, with uh, siding with uh, uh, certain uh, major powers in the world uh, i have to say that it's unlikely to uh, change the minds of uh, those who uh, uh, are uh, uh, rightfully perhaps uh, uh, you know uh, more, becoming more skeptical uh, from the go- of the government but the, that relationship there is a relationship in terms of trade uh, uh, the uh, uh, the the balance of of trade between uh, Russia and Venezuela is uh, uh, important, particularly, but only because the situation is so dire. And that again, I have to return to that uh, argument. Uh, this is a dilemma. The economic sanctions are the ones who are hurting uh, uh, the the prospects of uh, you know. Uh, ordinary Venezuelans. And that uh, is uh, a root cause of uh, the problem of migration for the United States, but also one of the reasons why Maduro uh, is uh, still in power. There is a very clear dynamic that members, a recent report of the U.S. Congress uh, underlined uh, these uh, unilateral sanctions tend to hit the people and also maintain uh, those uh, uh, in power who are supposedly the objective, uh, uh, you know, the objective of these sanctions. Mm. Uh, and Oscar, just briefly, what sort of reception do you think Lavrov can expect at the G20 meeting in Brazil? Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a, a cold one, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, is, uh, uh, there is a, a certain, a certain uh, common uh, perception that there are double standards. That that is something that can benefit uh, Russia. Uh, I mean, for instance, the European Union uh, continuing uh, mulling over whether or not uh, uh, to sanction uh, violent uh, Israeli settlers on the West Bank uh, proves to many in, in uh, the global South that there are that these that the international uh, rules-based system uh, does not apply to everyone, and that is hugely problematic because that's what that that's a godsend for for uh, people like Lavrov. So in that respect, uh, he can expect uh, uh, some uh, uh, you know more leeways, more possibilities of conversation. Uh, at the same time, everybody knows uh, uh, the kind of game that that Russia is playing. So uh, uh, you know we're nobody's uh, naive here. Uh, there are there are uh, contingencies and there are uh, points of uh, of agreement and unfortunately the situation in Israel and Palestine is making uh, uh, other uh, you know other consensuses uh, uh, being you know uh, becoming dissolved uh, uh, in in uh, uh, given the context Oscar thank you very much indeed that's Oscar Guardiola Rivera and this is the globalist 
UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's 24 minutes past seven here in London. I'm Georgina Godwin and it's time now to continue with today's newspapers. With me in the studio is Charles Hecker, a senior partner at Controlris. He's currently on leave writing a book about Russian and international business. I've just seen a mock-up of the cover and I have to say it's fantastic, Charles. That's very nice of you, Georgina. Thank you. (laughs) It's a book I'm much looking forward to. But in the meantime, let's start with Julian Assange because this is big splash in The Guardian. Julian Assange caught considers last-ditch bid to fight U.S. extradition, says the headline. Tell us more. That's right. Julian Assange, of course, is no stranger to the headlines in the British and in the global papers. But we are reminded by The Guardian today that Mr. Assange, or at least his representatives, will be back in court for a two-day process designed to allow Mr. Assange to challenge, finally and ultimately, for his last chance, Uh, to challenge the bid to bring him back to the United States where he faces charges for espionage. Um, We're told that and reminded, actually, that Mr. Assange has been in Belmarsh for five years, which is when you're reminded of that is really quite remarkable um, and in deteriorating health. Um, Mr. Assange's argument is that if he is extradited to the United States, it will present um, an irreversible threat to his health. Um, There are Um, members of his team, including his wife, who believe that he will commit suicide if he's moved to the United States. Um, But it's not looking good. Um, We'll see what the outcome of the two-day process is. Um, But you'll recall that Assange, of course, um, hacked into government databases with the assistance of Chelsea Manning and, and disgorged this enormous trove of internal documents and cables showing what the United States was up to um, diplomatically, including spying on a lot of its allies. Um, he was holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy for a number of years and was arrested promptly when the Ecuadorians finally t- turfed him out. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it, the, the two-day trial, I think, starts today, doesn't it? So we'll have some resolution on this That's right. uh, before the end of the week. Uh, let's now, uh, I mean, we've looked at Trump and his comments on NATO, but there is a big piece today in the, in the Washington Post, uh, which, which, uh, which takes us much further. That's right. Um, the headline in the Washington Post is Trump didn't quit NATO, but a potential second term alarms allies. And, you know, Georgina, you're right to say that we've been talking a lot about Trump's comment now more than a week ago when he was essentially inviting Russia or inviting the United States and NATO's enemies to attack the weaker members of the alliance. And of course, this really sent shockwaves out in the diplomatic community. Um, But the reason why I think that this is important to return to, and one of the things that's coming out 
in in the Washington Post story is you recall that when Trump was first campaigning and when he was first elected in 2016, um, the framing of his remarks was, you know, some people took him seriously, but not literally. Some people took him literally, but not seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that those days are gone. And, and that's what this story is reminding us. And that is that Trump is now much more prepared for a second presidency than he, have, than he ever was before and in a position actually to enact whatever he says. Uh, moreover, the Post reminds us that there is an entire cadre of personnel um, waiting to go into the Trump administration should that be the outcome in November who are also ready and willing to execute on his plans. And that's what has NATO very nervous. Uh, exactly. That last time he was stopped because there were grown-ups in the room, but this time he knows how to pack it just with his allies. Um, that's exactly right. And one of the people that the Post quotes is um, John Bolton, his former national security advisor, who's turned into a fairly severe Trump critic, um, who reminds us that that Trump has never lost his desire to leave NATO. And to your point about the grown-ups in the room, the grown-ups in the room this time will be very, very differently oriented than they were last time. Absolutely. Let's go to South Korea now. And uh, it seems to be an ill that is uh, spreading. Uh, junior doctors going on strike. That's right. Um, listeners from the United Kingdom will find this all uh, very familiar. The New York Times has a headline that says, South Korean doctors walk out protesting plan to increase their ranks. Um, and so this is very much similar to what we're seeing in the United Kingdom because this is junior doctors um, who are walking off uh, the job. What's different from what's happening in the UK is this isn't really a strike, but the New York Times tells us that more than 6,000 junior doctors have just resigned. They have submitted resignation papers saying, we're out of here. Um, the South Korean National Health Service has not accepted their resignation and in fact is threatening to penalize anybody um, who doesn't show up for work um, in the coming days. Um, it turns out that South Korea is rather undoctored. Um, it has less, far less, um, than the average number of doctors in most OECD countries. And as a result, uh, South Korean junior doctors are working shifts up to 24 hours long. And the Times tells us that some of them are on the job for 80 hours a week. Um, so quite a big gap to fill here. They feel underpaid and overworked. The South Korean government is saying, don't worry, we're going to admit more students to medical school. Um, and the doctors are saying that's not going to help as long as you're not paying anybody anything, no matter how many doctors there are. Mm. And I know one thing that, that certainly the doctors here in Britain are, are keen to, to emphasize is that when you say junior doctors, you are talking about uh, fully trained people, some of whom have been on boards for, you know, seven years. It's it, We're not talking about students. Here. No, that's right. In fact, this is the backbone of the South Korean National Health Service. These are the people who are in the trenches, in the hospitals, dealing with patients 24-7. Um, they have graduated medical school. They are fully-fledged MDs. Um, they're just working their way through the ranks of the medical system. But these are the folks who make hospitals work. Yeah. Uh, now, let's go deep into the the Japan, the Japan Times. Uh, a story you found, which I've got to say, I find slightly depressing. <laughs> <laughs> let's not go to Tokyo. <laughs> um, let's t- we can take Tokyo off of our um, list of, of places that we really want to visit. Um, deep, deep, deep inside the Japan Times in the tiniest print you could possibly imagine, 
there's a, a headline that says Japan draws up guidelines on alcohol consumption. And, you know, not to invoke stereotypes here, um, but one of the staples of Japanese business culture is the slightly tipsy salaryman um, who can be seen after hours sort of stumbling around the entertainment districts of Tokyo after a night of drinking with colleagues or clients. And along comes the Japanese Ministry of Health to be a bit of a party pooper here and, and has said that if you're going to follow government advice coming up, here's what's going to happen to you. And that is that men will be limited to drinking two bottles of beer a day or one cup of sake or two cups of sake per day. And women will have one bottle of beer a day um, or one cup of sake uh, a day. Now, of course, these aren't laws and you're not going to be forced. Um, these are guidelines. Um, and, of course, the Japanese Ministry of Health is very worried about its citizens' um, livers and its blood pressure and, and various other ills that come from excessive drinking. So it's telling its citizens, stop binge drinking, drink more water between drinks, and make sure that you have something to eat while you're at it. Well, that's pretty sensible advice, I guess. <laughs> that nobody likes to follow anyway. <laughs> Charles, thank you very much indeed. That's Charles Hecker there. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The United States has proposed a rival draft United Nations Security Council resolution calling for a temporary ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war and opposing a major ground offensive by its ally Israel in Rafah. This comes after the US indicated it would veto an Algerian drafted resolution today demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire over concerns it could jeopardize talks between the US, Egypt, Israel and Qatar that seek to broker a pause in the war and the release of hostages held by Hamas. Iran continues to enrich uranium well beyond the needs for commercial nuclear use, despite UN pressure to stop it, the IAEA chief says, adding he wants to visit Tehran next month for the first time in a year to end the drifting apart. Iran is still enriching at an elevated rate of around 7 kgs of uranium per month to 60% purity, the figure that brings uranium close to weapons grade. And Singapore kicked off Asia's biggest air show today, the first in six years unaffected by pandemic restrictions, as the global aviation industry grapples with a rebound in travel demand in the face of severe supply constraints. More than 1,000 companies from more than 50 countries are participating in the biennial commercial and defence-focused Singapore air show, led by Western industry giants. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. It's been nearly two years since Sweden said goodbye to neutrality and hello to collective defence within NATO. But following Turkey's decision to approve Sweden's entry to the alliance, Hungary remains the last holdout. As the Nordic nation edges closer to joining NATO, the Swedish government has pledged to boost defence spending to 2% of the country's GDP in line with NATO's target. Over the weekend at the Munich Security Conference, Monocle's Andrew Muller sat down with Paul Jonsson, Sweden's Minister of Defence. Andrew began by asking about Hungary's Viktor Orbán's statement that he was ready to ratify Sweden's accession to NATO and whether it was real this time. 
what he's been saying and then the government support us becoming in the members of the alliance and of course it's an autonomous parliament so of course it's a vote but they've done all the parliamentary groundwork it's been in the committees of foreign affairs and in defense and now it's just to put it to a vote and I, it just came back from the NATO ministerial where all the defense ministers meet inside NATO and there was an overwhelming support for Swedish membership and all of them were saying it has to happen and it has to happen as soon as possible. So as and when that happens does it free Sweden up to do more for Ukraine? Because I think you've said before that you weren't averse to sending the Grippens, the Swedish-made fighter plane, to the Ukrainians, but you felt Sweden needed to be within NATO before you could do that. Sure, we said that that would be one of the prerequisites that we have to be covered by Article 5 and NATO's common defence planning, because before we could undertaking measures that could have an impediment on our air defence system, this is also a decision that we would not be able to take alone, because as you know, the Grippen also consists of subcontractors and we are in in the fighter jet coalition as it's called as well and then we're thinking how we best can support the ukrainian with the fourth generation fighters right now a lot of focus is on f-16 but there's also some of us who don't operate the f-16 we can still contribute with landing training financing allowing our territory to be used for exercise and so forth so we have an open mind about this but uh, i don't know in do not in any way exclude the possibility that we could also send the gripen i mean it would be quite a statement for a country that until, well, very recently made a, uh, a whole point of centuries of obdurate neutrality because I know Sweden has already been sending assistance to Ukraine, but that really would tie Sweden very much to Ukraine's defence because that is a, a signature piece of Swedish kit. Well, listen, we sent defense equipment for over 2 billion euros to Ukraine and we're going to continue doing that. I always say my highest priority is that we should help the Ukrainians to achieve operational effect on the battlefield. Therefore, it's very important that we send platforms, but it's also extremely important that we work out maintenance, logistics and spare parts. We send over 50 CV-90s. I want to make sure that they are rolling and that they're doing the job. We send 10 tanks, Leopard 2-4A, and we send the archer system, so maintenance as well is very important for the Ukrainians. Do you think there is still, well, I mean, it does seem to be demonstrated by the figures, but that extraordinary buy-in by the Swedish public into this very stark change in mindset by Sweden. I'm wondering especially about if you see that reflected in the extraordinary upsurge of people applying to join Sweden's military reserves, the Home Guard. The numbers are colossal. Actually, I think they're very closely intertwined because the statement I did a few months ago in regard to the deterioration of our security environment and the Minister of of, uh, Civil Defence and also the head of the Swedish Armed Forces was that our security is so closely connected to Ukrainians. So in case the Russians would win this war, we will be in lots of problems, not just because of Ukraine itself and the strategy and the, and so forth, but it would have a direct impact to our security. So supporting Ukraine is really an investment into our own security. If I look at the opinion polls, the Swedes are about 90% are for continued support for Ukraine, and I think that's where, among the publics in Europe, that's one of the most ardent supporters. And there's also a big bipartisan support as well. Out of the 14 packages we sent so far, all the eight parties have supported all but one. At this conference, have you found that mood reflected among other defence ministers, foreign ministers, prime ministers that you've been speaking to? Because I know there is still this concern, which we hear a lot from politicians from countries further east, and it's certainly something that Ukrainian politicians have mentioned over the last couple of years, that, well, it's, it's that mantra that you will have heard, that Ukraine is being given enough to survive, but not enough to win, almost as if Ukraine's allies are 
also fearful of what actual defeat for Russia would portend. Mm. I think someone nailed it today when they said that many people underestimated Ukraine in 2022 and Russia in 2023 because Russia has proven itself when it came to resilience, its ability to regenerate new forces and also its defense production capacity. So I think those are we are challenged with that. The frustration that I can sense in the room when we are here is that we are ramping up industrial production, but it's going to take a couple of years until it gets really effective, especially the two things that are really crucial is providing the Ukrainians with more air defense system and more artillery ammunition 155 and things are on the right trajectory but we're not where we want to be right now the other factor of course is being um, continued support both inside the EU but also that the United States remain committed to this endeavor over that next couple of years though do you hope to see Sweden setting an example in that respect and I know Sweden for all its neutrality has always taken defense seriously you've always had a fairly serious defence force, you have an extremely serious defence manufacturing capacity, but do you see Sweden over the next couple of years becoming a more obviously militarised nation? Depending what you mean with militarised nation, <laughs> but listen, we have doubled our defence expenditures between 2020 and 2024. We are now at 2.2% of GDP and we're on the trajectory up to 25 I feel we have a strong defence industrial base and that's helpful when we're help supporting the Ukrainians. When we send the CV-90s, the Archer systems, the RBS-70 and so forth, we can work with finding good solutions for logistics, maintenance, ammunition, security of supply. So things like that, because the defense industry is an area where we punch above our weight. There's no other country of 10 million who can design, fight the aircraft and submarines, for example. And that's something we can bring to the table. Now, what uh, we want to accomplish as well is when we become full-fledged members of the alliance as well, we want to be a security provider and the assets we can take into the alliance, such as our expertise on Russia, a strong defense industrial base, scoring very well on innovation, having a quite strong underwater capabilities and quite strong air defense capabilities. Those are also assets that we can help make NATO stronger as well. Sweden's Minister of Defense, Paul Janssen, speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. You're with Monocle Radio. It is 9.40 in Cairo, that's 8.40 in Zurich. Yesterday, the European Union launched a naval mission to protect commercial vehicles in the Red Sea from attacks by Iran-backed Houthi rebels. The Houthis, a group that controls part of Yemen, says their attacks are in retaliation for Israel's war in Gaza. Now, 12% of global trade and as much as 30% of global container traffic passes through the waterway and the strikes are threatening to disrupt the supply chain to Europe. The latest on this story is that the crew of a Belize flag British registered cargo vessel have abandoned ship off Yemen after it was hit by missiles fired by the Houthi movement. The Ruby Ma was in the Gulf of Aden and nearing the Bab al-Mandab Strait when it was struck and it's carrying very dangerous fertilisers. That's the story we'll be following today. Well, I'm joined now by Ali Bohani, who's a strategy expert who was formerly based in Dubai and managing director of 360 Strategic Advisors. Ali's also co-host of BRI Dialogues. Thanks so much for coming into the studio. Um, Ali, there's already a naval mission to defend vessels in the Red Sea, the US-led Operation Prosperity Guardian. That launched in December. Originally, that had some EU backing. Why then does the bloc feel it needs its own mission? 
Well, great to be with you, uh, Georgina. I think uh, the question here is that um, who joined uh, OPG, or Operation Prosperity Guardian? It didn't have a lot of uh, takers, even within GCC or the you know Persian Gulf, for that matter. And uh, the Europeans at the moment have launched this operation as Spedis, which in Greek means the shield. And um, reality is that there is tremendous pressure on EU to show some muscle. They're anticipating a Trump presidency. Um, Ursula von der Leyen is running for EU presidency for the second term. So she would like to demonstrate that EU is serious. The fact of the matter is that, um, you know, it is a purely defensive um, structure and made out of France, Italy, Germany, Brussels may contribute and Greece. So I think there is not much of a comprehensive collective uh, security or political coherence in EU. And as a matter of fact, um, you know, without American Protection Shield, it could turn into not the coalition of willing, but coalition of sinking <laughs> without that umbrella from United States. So it's yet to be seen what they can do with this new arrangement. Why is Baba Mandab of such significance then? Well, it's a great question. Babel Mandab means the gate of grief. <laughs> and when you think about it, it's sitting at the mouth and entrance of Red Sea. Um, there is an island over there that is called Berem Island or Mayun Island, which was, you know, in, uh, occupied by Britain for many years. And in 1967, Britain even lobbied with UN to internationalize <laughs> a piece of land that belongs to Yemen, UAE and Saudi Arabia have been building a runway there. The competition in Red Sea is just beyond just a few containers. You have above the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden, Aqaba, sorry, Naom is building the biggest project ambitions of uh, Saudi Arabia. Across the Red Sea, you have uh, in Djibouti, Chinese sitting and watching all of these uh, actions and I would say fireworks. So, the, the economics of Red Sea are much more important than just the containers and geopolitics of it ever more important, Georgina. Well, let's unpick that again a, a bit because the, the Houthis say that the attacks on shipping is in response to the Israeli attack on Gaza, but the strikes seem to have been pretty indiscriminate. And I wonder how the major global shipping firms are being impacted and what effect that might have on the economy, not, not just into Europe, but further afield, China, for instance. Well, that's, that word indiscriminate is uh, quite right because they've also hit their, a ship that was destined for their allies, the Iranians as well. So it's not like they have uh, precision accuracy in hitting whomever they want uh, the way they want. But one has to give them a bit of credit as well that uh, so far, thanks God, uh, they haven't had any deaths in any of these attacks or close to 40 of these attacks since they started. And to in Western capitals, now there is tremendous amount of finger pointing and blaming Houthis for all the malaise of the economics and inflation and all of that. Uh, that's a bit too rich and too a, a bit dishonest. The issue with container shipping is the surge in uh, volume of containers around the world. Labor issues across the ports in the world, you know, there are, there are issues there. Infrastructure capacities and limitations, you know, vessel delays are there, but also operational inefficiencies. So it is important, but just to say that because of this, all of the issues of supply chain are on the Houthi's shoulder and all of the inflation for malpractices of governments around the world, from Asia Pacific all the way to Europe in particular, 
are on Houthis is not correct. At the moment, the European Union, it was a headline I read that they're providing subsidies to a chicken farmer, uh, you know, magnet in Ukraine, and European farmers are with their tractors on the streets of uh, of Europe. So, so the key question is where the resources are going, what is the capacity of infrastructure, and when you look at, again, the Suez Canal and Port of Eilat, which is port in Israel, 85% of the traffic is lower because, yes, anything that is destined to these ports for Israelis or perceived by Houthis destined for Israel has caused disruptions. But to ignore the infrastructure limitations and capacities is as well overlooking the troubles. Where does China play into this? Well, China is, um, you know, uh, sitting in Djibouti looking at it So far, the trade necessarily hasn't been impacted through, you know, all the shipments from China. Um, But China is looking at it from a geostrategic calculation on how it's going to play within the region. Oil supplies, of course, are important. Uh, You know, Bab al-Mandab is one of them. Uh, Then you have Strait of Hormuz. Then you have Panama Canal, Suez and uh, Strait of Malaga. So this two, Strait of Hormuz and Bab al-Mandab, are two of the most important um, waterways. But China is um, taking a comprehensive, I think, pragmatic way of how to play her cards in the region because it's energy dependent, trade dependent, and is observing from distance in a Tai Chi mode. It hasn't got into <laughs> Kung Fu or anything for that matter for yeah. sending a flotilla or anything like that. Some reports say that Egypt is actually the biggest loser in this. It is true that, uh, um, that um, you know, Egypt is benefiting from Suez Canal. It's, you know, nine and a half billion dollars of revenue last year. But there are rumors among analysts as well that, you know, Israel is busy or flirting with the idea of opening the Ben-Gurion Canal. If that opens, which uh, according to some analysis will run through parts of southern Israel or Gaza for that matter, then Suez has a direct competitor. So that's that's the case. And, and, and one of the things that is overlooked in the Houthi crisis is that, um, God forbid, if there is an Exxon Valdez leakage of oil... <laughs> In these precious, beautiful waters, a lot of tourism projects will go down. And my hope is that, you know, uh, at the end of the day, as uh, Minion McLaughlin, the American journalist and author, said, we semaphore from ship to ship, but they are sinking too. I hope one of these containers will carry some common sense, dialogue and peace <laughs> in both directions. And we can we can come to terms because all of the answers are diplomatic. If force was... Uh, answer, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq by now would have been nirvana in heaven. (laughs) Ali Bahani, always a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time now to talk fashion with Rebecca Tay, who is a retail expert and a brand consultant. Rebecca, it's lovely to have you back on the programme. 
Thank you so much, Georgina. Nice to hear from you. Uh, London Fashion Week. Tell us more. It's uh, 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 in full swing. Yes, it is. And so I think the big show was Burberry, which was last night. Um, lots of sort of lead up, lots of kind of questions. Um, Daniel Lee has been at the house now for a little while. Obviously, he did a lot of great things at Bottega Veneta. Um, but I think his strategy at Burberry has been a little bit or maybe perhaps Burberry has been a little bit more of a challenge for him to turn around and kind of see that success that he saw at Bottega. Mm-hmm. And other highlights? Yeah, so I think, um, I think there's still a lot of question about whether or not he was actually successful. So I think we know Burberry for its sort of Britishness. He sort of leaned into that. He's kind of shown different ways that it can, you know, it can be still very British, but modern as well. He redid the logo. Um, and so last night he showed a show that was, you know, kind of leaned into it a little bit. Um, there's that sort of kind of country house feeling, the big duffel coats, for example, that really coziness that we love about kind of British weather, I suppose, in the autumn winter. He also really tapped into nostalgia. So he had quite a few kind of longtime British um, models walking in the show. So Agnes Dean, Karen Nelson, um, who's also a musician, Lily Cole, Lily Donaldson. So he sort of was really leaning into the sense of nostalgia and Britishness. Um, but I think the clothing them- itself, it's, I'm not sure that it's sort of going to hit that sort of commercial success. Um, There's some really great jackets with that plaid motif that we love. Um, but again, it's He's sort of, uh, it's, I think we'll have to see whether or not the stores actually purchase. Yeah. Uh, and then I just want to have a quick look at these architectural handbags. Yes, this is, such a, this is kind of an interesting one, actually, because it is Louis Vuitton. So obviously known for its leather goods and handbags. Um, but they've had a long time relationship with Frank Gehry, the architect. Um, so apparently the relationship goes back 20 years. He worked on the Fondation uh, Louis Vuitton in Paris. Um, he also worked on the Seoul flagship store. Um, and at Art Basel in December, they released a collection of eight, 11 handbags. I'm sorry. Um, and they're actually just coming to stores now. There's, they're quite interesting. They're quite architectural, as you would expect. Um, but they are kind of works of art as well. So he sort of calls them, I think, objects in motion. Um, there is handbags that sort of have like a little lizard um, motif kind of coming as a handle. There's a fish that is, um, I think it's a replica of the sexy fish motif in the restaurant in London that's kind of coming off a handbag as well. There's a clutch that's actually a little metal bear, I suppose, and it's another one of Frank Gehry's motifs. So it's quite a collection. Some of them are definitely more wearable every day than others, but I think they're all quite collectible, which I suppose is the point. Absolutely. Do we know what they retail for? Do you know what? That is actually a very good question. I was trying to find that. I think they are... I can't actually find the prices, but I don't Basically, if, if we have cheap, to ask, so. we can't afford it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And the capucines, there's one that also looks kind of like a croc stamped leather. So that is definitely not going to be um, a cheap, <laughs> cheap item. <laughs> Rebecca, thank you very much indeed. Nice to hear from you again. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Finally, the ongoing collapse of one of Europe's most successful property develops, de- developers, Signa, has dominated the financial headlines since it declared insolvency in November last year. Owned by the Austrian billionaire René Benko, its holdings stretch across Germany, Austria, Switzerland and northern Italy. It also has stakes in the Chrysler Building in New York and the UK's department store chain Selfridges. Now that Signa's fate hangs in the balance, its story is being adapted for the stage. Monocle's Alexei Koryalov meets a playwright in Vienna who translated what has been described as the biggest bankruptcy in Austrian history into drama. 
Guten Morgen, liebe 6a. Ich bin euer Mathematiklehrer. Guten Morgen, lieber Herr Fuhr. Heute geht es um Betongold. Was verstehen wir unter Betongold? It's a story that lends itself naturally to dramatization. An all-powerful magnate brought suddenly to his knees. My name is Kalle Fuhr. I'm a theater director and author from Austria. Kalle Fuhr's version of it, The Rise and Fall of René Benko, will premiere at Vienna's Volkstheater next month. It's based on the work of Austrian investigative outlet Dossier that's been looking into Benko's Signer empire for years. René Benko has a way to operate that is suspicious. And it's not suspicious since last year, but it's been for decades. I always say it's like a magic trick where you do something with your left hand that everybody looks at your left hand and nobody notices what you do with your right. And I think that's the way Benko operated. How does that play out in your, in your play? Well, the play is kind of like a lecture performance. It's somewhere between a journalist view on Benko and, I would say, stand-up comedy. Uh, I don't portray Benko himself, but I am there as me, who does things that Benko also did. For example, Benko um, started his business by buying a little house, um, renovating it and selling it to another person, buying a bigger house. It is so abstract and it's really hard to just explain it that I decided to say, okay, hey, you in the first row, what's your name? Let's say you have a house. Would you stand up, please? This is house owner number one. And so we can buy and sell houses in the audience, with the audience, so they really experience it. Cigna has blamed its downfall on external factors, including a steep rise in Eurozone interest rates since the COVID pandemic. While that undoubtedly played a part, there were other reasons. Cigna's notoriously complex shareholding structure and the domineering way was run by Benko. Madeleine Stottmeier has been covering the story for the Austrian daily Die Presse. He's not actually involved in management officially. So he stepped down, I think, 2012 as a CEO of the firm. So he's not, he has no official role in that firm anymore. But he is interesting because with him, René Benko, all the lines are drawn together. All the streets come together. So he is just a brilliant networker. And also, I think it's fair to say that there was a certain luxury that was just astonishing. I mean, we talk about a yacht. We talk about, you know, certain events that he hosted where the bill was paid by the company, not by him privately, even though the company already struggled, which now raises questions, especially from investors who, you know, know that their money is basically lost. Benko, of course, he is a character that is really interesting. He has connections to all the politicians in the German-speaking area you could think of. But what I think is even more interesting than the individual Benko is the system that made Benko survive and grow. For playwright Kalle Fuhr, Benko's tale is a cautionary one. Because Benko is a symptom for so many things going wrong. And I'm not too much interested in doing a Benko bashing for 90 minutes, but to expose the system that made him possible 
and to ask the question, what can we learn from this to find out how we can get better as a society and avoid the next Rinibenko. This is a watershed moment for Austria. Cygnus' collapse comes as a perjury trial against one of Benko's most prominent backers, former Chancellor Sebastian Kurz, enters its final stages. Between them, the two men have dominated the country for too long. So what happens to them next will impact its business and its politics for years to come. For Monaco in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolov. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Carlotta Ribello and Tom Webb. Our researcher Neoma Ekwe and our studio manager Christy O'Grady. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and the briefing is live at midday in London. The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>